0: So as, as we do return this evening for just a brief view of chapter 10, parts of it, I know your heart begins to tremble when I say brief. I guess I will say brief and then not be brief. I know, I know. It is, it is a character flaw. Pray for me. <laughs> but my intention is to be brief. Um, but I do want to give you something of a sense of what's going on here in chapter ten. Uh, we've been not uh, we've not been in Jeremiah for uh, for several months. Uh, I'm not going to give a review of the book. I'm not going to give a major overview of what this section contains in relation to the rest. But I just want to just zero in a bit on the part of what I'm going to read that we didn't look at last time because it is a unit unity unit a unit of of thought that really hangs together. Um, And what Jeremiah seems to be doing is he seems to be contrasting, on the one hand, the folly of idolatry, and then, in contrast, the God of Israel, the true king of the nations, the true Lord of all creation, the God who created the world and everything in it. God of providential rule. And so you got this back and forth movement. I'll give you the rundown. Uh, Verses 2 to 5 addresses idols. Verses 6 and 7 addresses Yahweh, the king of the nations. And what is expressed about the idols is their ridiculousness. It's the folly of the whole practice and how to People even engage in this stuff when it, by its very nature, is just so foolish. And so he holds up idolatry to ridicule, to derision on the one hand, and then he holds up the God of Israel in terms of praise and worship and exaltation and showing forth his supremacy, his incomparability. And so, again, folly of idolatry 2 to 5. Yahweh king of the nations 7 and 8 the folly of idols again in verse I'm sorry verses 6 and 7 was Yahweh the king of the nations verse 8 and 9 you're back to the folly of the idol worshippers and then Yahweh is king again in verses um, in verse 10 um, back to idols in verse 11 and that's that verse remember I said there's one verse verse 11 that is not in Hebrew It's in the Aramaic language, and I'll say something about that. Uh, But then in verse 12, we're back to Yahweh, the God of all creation. And uh, then we're back, uh, that's in 12 and 13. In verse 14, you're back to the folly of idolatry uh, once again. And then it closes in verse 16 with, again, another expression of the um, glory of the God of Israel. And, and, and it really all moves to one great exclamation that comes at the end of verse 16 when it says, Yahweh of hosts is his name. Yahweh of hosts in his, is his name. And it's an interesting thing that you have that expression some eight times in the book of Jeremiah. This is the first time it's used in chapter 10. It's used again in chapter 16. It's used again, I mean, a couple of times in chapter 52. It, there's other... eight times, eight times in Jeremiah. It's also used in Isaiah, when you get to that section when Isaiah is dealing with idolatry as well. In Isaiah 44 and 47, um, in those later chapters in the book of Isaiah. And it's also used in terms, well, not so much um, Yahweh of hosts is his name, but just the expression then Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is his name. That's another variation. And that's usually found in, 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 in the praises that's given to God when he wins mighty victories. Uh, the uh, whole song of the sea that's in Exodus chapter 15. He, the horse and the rider, he is thrown into the sea. God has won this great victory. Who is this God? Yahweh is his name. His name is Yahweh, and He's to be worshipped, He's to be praised for all that's bound up in His name. And so that's where this whole whole going back and forth between idols and Yahweh should lead us to just this worship of His name, this understanding of the greatness of His name, of this acclamation of the name of the God of Israel, that He is our God, and because He is who He is, He's our hope. He's the constant in the midst of all of life's uncertainties, all of the ups and downs, all of the, the dark days and the dismal days and the difficult days. God is the unchanging God of Israel. And so God's people have a future. Contrast, the idolaters have no future. Their gods will perish and they will perish along with their gods. But God's people have a future because of who Yahweh is as the true God and is the everlasting King. So again, we looked at the first eleven verses last time we were together, and again, I'll just remind you just something of the of the highlights of it. Um, the folly of idolatry is uh, simply because you take in a, a, a tree, uh, the works of God's hands. Really, it's it's God who gives uh, you know the the. the, the you know the created order and the created uh, forests and the mountains and the hills and uh, he brings uh, he has uh, created the silver and the gold and what people do is they take these things that belong to creation that belong to the hand of God in, in creation and, and and they go and they fashion a god with it it's the work of men's hands it's the work of the craftsmen who decorate their idols with their silver and their gold. Um, and their idols can do nothing, they can't speak they can't they can't uh, hear they can't uh, act they cannot do evil they cannot do good uh, they have to be carried by their devotees um, they can't walk they have no feet, they have no legs they have no ability to do anything in contrast is none like you all Lord in contrast, you are great your name is great, who would not fear you O king of the nations in verse 7 Uh, For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all of their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. What do you learn? What do you learn from an idol? Well, you learn that they're made of wood. That's about it. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsman and the hands of the goldsmith. Again, that's, you know, man is the work of God's hands. And then he turns and takes the created things God has made, the work of God's hands, and then he fashions an idol with his hands and then bows down and makes it uh, the object of his worship. Uh, They're the work of skilled men, but in contrast, in contrast to the folly of idolatry, is the King of Israel, the living God, the everlasting King. Yahweh is the true God. And then you have the Aramaic term that comes in, in the words of verse 11. And you shall say to them, The God who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Now, say to who? is really the great question. Who is it that uh, Jeremiah is directed to say these words to? You shall say to them. Well, maybe you should say it to idolatrous Israel. (laughs) Maybe you should say it to the idol worshippers in Israel who bow down before the bales, who worship in the high places, who bow down under every green tree, as he said in the earlier chapters in chapter 2, who engage in this syncretic of uh, worship that's bringing together uh, Yahweh worship and Baal worship it's trying to put them all in a little soup of notions and ideas so if your prayers are not heard as quickly as you'd like to have Yahweh answer their prayers well you can always rely on something that Baal might be able to do because he's credited with being a great um, God of fertility so maybe our crops will be in better hands putting them in the hands of the gods of the Canaanites but you know it's an Aramaic statement and so maybe the background is not the Canaanites. Maybe the background is, in fact, the people of Mesopotamia, the people of, who speak Aramaic, like the Babylonians, the language that Israel is soon to adopt as they go into captivity. You shall say to them, Now later on, Jeremiah is commissioned by the Lord to write letters and to write words to the exiles. To say to the people in exile these things. To tell them to settle down in the land. Don't be rebellious. To build houses. To plant your vineyards and gardens. And uh, seek the peace of the city. and, And don't be in rebellion. Embrace the reality that this is the place God has sent you. Until he's pleased to bring you back to Judah. And it's an interesting thing that in the Targums, that's the Jewish commentaries that exist, um, what the Targums were is uh, when the people of Israel lost the knack of speaking Hebrew and began to speak Aramaic, There was always a need to translate the scriptures, or to bring the scriptures into a language they could understand. And so you had translators who were not just scribes translating, they also developed interpretations. They would make commentaries, and sometimes they would stick the commentaries within the text itself. And that became what's called the Targums. There's a targum that is explanatory, it makes commentary, it gives explanation of the things that are in the law. There's also a targum that does the same thing with with the prophets. And those targums got read by the Jews, because they didn't really understand Hebrew that well. So when they had the translations, read the explanations, they would read those things. And the rabbis told them, well you're to read the book of Jeremiah in the translation, and you're to read it twice. Targum, you read only once because the main thing of course is the words themselves but you have possibly something of a targum written in the, the language of the Babylonians Aramaic that might have gotten inserted here is that the reason we have one verse in all of Jeremiah in all of the 52 chapters of Jeremiah that is in Aramaic it got kind of slipped in to the text, because most of the translations that we have today are usually dependent on what's called the Masoretic text. And that's a rather late text. And the Masoretes were big and also translating Targums. They were busy not just translating or copying the Hebrew text, but also they were concerned to also give the targums to the people for them to read for the purposes of explanation, explanatory words. And so when the rabbis take this verse, and maybe they see it in terms of you shall say to them, like Jeremiah was told to speak to the people in captivity, maybe he's addressing them. You shall say to them, and there's one of the rabbis, his name was Rishi, He was a French guy in the 14th century, I think it was. And uh, he explained this in terms of that very possibility. And again, uh, we don't know, but I thought I'd read to you at least what uh, this Jewish Targum uh, says, this man Rishi. says in introduction to this section. He says, this is a copy of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent to the remnant of the elders of the exile who were in Babylon. And this is what he says, he says, "This is not in the text, but um, this is what he's saying was in the targum anyway, or it was, or in the letter in the letter that Jeremiah sent. That's not in the text here. If the nations among whom you, among whom you are, should say to you worship the idols, O house of Israel,' then you shall answer them. Thus shall you say to them." So. They're looking at this as the answer to give to idolaters in foreign lands where you might be taken. And that you're basically to say to them at that point, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he uttered his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. You tell them why you're not going to worship idols, because God is the living God. He's the God who made the heavens and the earth. And every other God's going to perish. This God alone remains. Thus shall you say to them, the God who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Again, we don't know that to be the the case. There certainly was plenty of idolaters in Israel who learned their idolatry from the Canaanite gods and from the Egyptian gods. And not just from the gods of Babylon. Although the gods of Babylon certainly abounded with multiplied gods. But yet, it's Israel's God that stands in contrast. It's Israel's God who is the living God, who is the true God, who is the king of the nations, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the only eternal being who will never perish, and hence can give a future to his people who trust him and look to him. Whether they're in Babylon or whether they're in in Judah, uh, whether they're in Pine Bush, New York tonight, to recognize that this God is the eternal God. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, in verse 12, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And it seems to me that this aspect of God's creative activity is attributed to these very aspects of God's own nature and character. It's, it's, it's a work of creation that God has effected, making the earth, establishing the world, stretching out the heavens, and what informed all that he has done is power, wisdom, and understanding. God does all that he does in power and in wisdom and in understanding. His power is seen as he utters his voice. And the tumult of waters in the heavens, and the mist rises from the ends of the earth. Uh, lightning for the rain, bringing forth the wind from the storehouses. You see, the God who created is also the God who rules the heavens and the earth. And every aspect of the things that you see all around you in nature, and all the changes in weather patterns, and all the changes in the, 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 the things that happen in the seas, it's in his hands. He's ruling and governing by his own providential wisdom, power, and understanding. And so in the contrast to the God who is creator and providential ruler in power, wisdom, and understanding, you look down at verse 14, you don't see wisdom, do you? you? You see stupidity. You don't see knowledge. You see the absence of knowledge. You don't see power there's no breath in these idols, they're worthless a work of delusion, the time of their punishment, they shall perish it's not so much that these gods will be judged, their worshipers will be judged you don't have a big run on Moloch worship today the worship of the other gods of the Babylonian Pantheon about seven major gods and dozens and dozens of minor gods that they worshipped. Uh, Tiamat. And, anybody around a, a devotee of Tiamat today? Major god in the Babylonian pantheon. But just as Babylon ceased to be as a power in the world, so their god ceased to be. Because the only thing that gives these gods life is the fact that there are people that worship them. A lot of times there are people that think that the Bible is is not really monotheistic. They think it's uh, something they call henotheism. Which basically says, well, there are other gods that are worshipped in other places that have power and control and ability to do great things. But uh, Israel's God is the best of them all. And so we worship Israel's God because Israel's God is better, stronger, and and truer. uh, But the other gods have some measure of reality. I don't think Jeremiah thinks that. I know Isaiah didn't think that. Um, again, these gods have no power. They have no wisdom. They have no capability of doing anything, as it says earlier, good or bad. They're worthless, a work of delusion, no breath in them, nothing of truth, everything is false. At the time of their punishment, God's going to bring punishment upon the Babylonians. When he brings punishment upon the Babylonians, nobody's going to talk about Marduk and Tiamuk and Anuk and all the other gods of the of the Babylonian pan, pantheon. But in contrast to that, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. This God is the eternal inheritance of his people. The people that he is in covenant with He is their portion, their inheritance. Again, every Israelite had a portion in the land. They had an inheritance given to them by Lot. But God is the portion of his people, the true portion. That we have our inheritance in God. That though land might be taken from the people in Israel today, they need to turn back to the God of their fathers. They need to find their refuge in Him. They need to find their sufficiency and fullness in Him as He's come to the human race. Um, yes, with a land grant that's promised to us, a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells, but something that only can be realized by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that they would come to faith in Christ and know that God is the portion of His people. He is the one who formed all things And hence, he's the one who has the right to dispose all things into the hands of whom he wills. And he says, it's the meek that shall inherit the earth. It's not the great warriors of the earth. It's not the wise people of the earth. It's not the rich people of the earth. It's not the powerful people of the earth. It's the people of his own possession. Those whom he calls to himself and brings about in their, in their lives. Those, 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 that, that likeness to him in terms of grace in terms of righteousness, in terms of truth, in terms of again, all the things that ex- that God did in the way of His creation of the world. He, he operates in the creation of His people wisdom that He imparts to them understanding that He gives to them power, enablement to please Him and to honor Him and to serve Him that He affords to His people He's the creator of all things He's the portion of His people And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. There's this reciprocal thing. That um, he is the portion of his people. But lo and behold, there's this other reality that works from the opposite end. And that is, we are his inheritance. I don't get that. How in the world could God have an inheritance? He owns all things. But yet, he has made his people to be his inheritance he's created us to be uh, what is said to be in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1 somehow, some way in some undefinable way that's past our ability to ever comprehend it Paul speaks of the church that Jesus is head over that's the fullness of him that fills all in all now we can contribute nothing to God but God takes pleasure in his people And he takes pleasure in the outpouring of his love upon his people. He takes pleasure in receiving a people to himself. That he himself says, this is my inheritance. The people that I've redeemed for my name. The people that I've brought into covenant with myself. It's not just that he is our inheritance. We are his inheritance. Amazement upon amazement that such a thing should ever be. And then it almost seems again as if everything that he has said about God is all working towards this wondrous and glorious crescendo of ideas that Yahweh of hosts is his name. Proclaim it. Confess it. Declare it. Shout it from the mountaintops that Yahweh of hosts is his name. This is this great and glorious God who is the eternal and everlasting King, who is the creator of all things who is the living God, the true God, the God who works and operates in wisdom and power and understanding and the God of grace who calls a people to himself to whom he gives himself to be their inheritance and whom he esteems to be his inheritance. What can you say to that? You almost want to fall at the feet of Jesus' as. Thomas did, and make that great confession, my Lord and my God. But I believe we should come to the end of this declaration of the uniqueness of the God of Israel, his incomparability, in the contrast to the idols of the nations that they worship, and we should come also with a confession. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Bless his holy name. Rejoice in who he is and what he's revealed about himself. Live in the light of God's own self-disclosure. That he is the God who gives us a future. He is a God who's committed to the blessing of his own covenant people. To give himself to us is our inheritance and to receive us as his inheritance gladly loudly joyfully declare Yahweh of hosts is his name let's pray Father we're thankful for this great contrast that Jeremiah gives to us of your incomparability of your supremacy, of your wondrous and amazing glory and majesty, and how that just brings everything that is the work of men's hands to nothing, brings all of the idols of this world all the false gods that people worship it brings them to nothing We're thankful, Father, that we can look to you, that we have a God who is living, a God who is true, a God who reigns in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, a God in whom there is nothing that is impossible, a God who does all of your holy will, a God who, in grace and wondrous mercy, comes and makes us to be your people and has said to us, I am your God. We thank you, Father, for all that you've given us in your love. We're thankful for all the blessedness we've received so freely from your hands. We thank you we can rehearse those blessings as a worshiping people as we gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day. We're thankful for this day that you've given us. It's been good. And We pray, Lord, that the things we have considered this evening would, would take our hearts into places of deepening love, and deepening devotion as we consider who you are in all of the wonder of your grace and of your goodness, as well as your power and your wisdom and your understanding. Hear our prayers as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.